at the end of the day, that is all of our jobs in life is learning when that when we should shut up and when we yes. should speak up. Um, there you go. It <laughs> <laughs> sums it up perfectly. <laughs> we'll get there. Oh, that's great. Self-leadership can be lonely. It's hard to do the thing no one else wants to do, that no one else is willing to do. But you are not alone. There are others dancing through the fight and laughing as they lead. Let's find them, swap stories, and live through this together. Welcome to How I Live Through This. I'm your host, Ann Roach, and I'm really glad you're here. Today, I'm talking with Hannah Wright, who I first met in the Story Skills Workshop and again in the podcasting workshop. I was so inspired by the generous way she showed up in both workshops and by her determined advocacy that I asked her to come on season one, Leaders for Change, and talk a little about leadership with me. Hannah has a lot of identities that have meant different things to her in her life. At the moment, she's valuing three of these identities. Her identity as a supportive co-parent for her 12-year-old daughter and her nine-year-old son as they grow up during the pandemic, as they experience it in Melbourne, Australia. Her identity as a white, straight, cisgendered, able-bodied, neurotypical Australian woman who is fortunate enough to have the time and space to allow room for her midlife awakening to unfold and her identity as a producer of the podcast, We Can All Be Allies, in which she explores how we can better show up for the people and social causes in our life that we care most about. Hannah, welcome. I'm so glad you're here. Thank you, Anne. I'm very glad to be here. (laughs) I asked you on the podcast because of how transparently, how vulnerably you speak of being an ally and what that means to you. Can you tell me a little bit about how you stepped into that role? Hmm. Sure. I've been practicing telling this story because <laughs> I find it kind of awkward to um, to admit that I'd say I'm an accidental ally. So I was one of those people who, you know, I think I was a good person and um, a nice person, but I didn't really understand what more I could be. Um, until I stumbled upon it, really. So I uh, was working at a company and on the side doing a group facilitation course. And that was really a selfish need for me. I didn't really like the way groups I was in worked and I wanted to understand how to help them work better. So I get into the course and I find I don't have a group to facilitate. I've got to practice. (laughs) And the company I was working in started a diversity and inclusion uh, initiatives and they were asking for people to join some working groups. And I saw the email and I thought I could volunteer for this and get a group to facilitate. Mm. And so I put my um, hand up for that. And about a month or two later, I got the email back saying, thanks for your interest. Uh, We're allocating you to the LGBTI uh, network. And so I walked into that room not really knowing much about LGBTI inclusion at all Yeah. and um, started on that journey. So I started facilitating the group, helping them come up with their strategic plan and thinking about what it meant for them in the company to do that work. And 
as we went through, I just fell in love with the group that I was working with mm. and and really started to understand what allyship was and that there was a role for me there, that the work didn't have to be done just by the people who identified. So I was an accidental ally and and I suppose a nerd as well. So I got into it and then nerded up on everything diversity and <laughs> that, that's where kind of my, my two identities collided. Then. <laughs> I love that nerded up. I love that. I love the terminology accidental ally too, because I'm curious about what made you raise your hand to begin with, especially with a subject like diversity and inclusion. Was that something that you had been thinking about? Was that, where did that come from? No, I wouldn't. I, I think, I think, you know, we kind of hear these concepts. Um, and as a woman, you're always being reminded of it, I feel like. So I'd come from uh, one of the big law firms in Australia and we'd, we'd talk about it a lot you know, where were the women, how many women were being made partners, yeah. all these kinds of things. And you'd go to these sessions where um, it would be all the women talking about what all the women were doing. <laughs> and uh, I kind of got frustrated with it. I didn't really find my place in that. I felt like I was still just wandering through on my own mm. and not really sure how it impacted me. So I'd probably say I was a little bit disenchanted with diversity and inclusion work when I got to that point. We did have, there was an LGBTI group that started when I was at the law firm and people asked me to get involved and at that point I had young kids, they did after work activities and I'd say to them, you know, I really want to show that I'm supportive but I just can't come to a movie night after work or something like yeah. that and I, I couldn't find my place. You know, I'd talk to them about, look, can we get can we get rainbow stickers that we can put on our office door or something to show that we're supportive? Is there some way we can do that? But I wasn't doing anything active in that space. So it really was, I just needed a group to facilitate. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, if work had, my life would be completely different if work had started up, I don't know, an innovation um, working groups and mm. I volunteered to facilitate for that. I could be doing something completely different now. Hmm. Okay, that's the coach in me raising a little flag saying, I'm not too sure I believe that. <laughs> okay, well, I'll tell you. <laughs> I've had other experiences in my life where I felt like I should be able to do diversity and inclusion better. So um, in Australia, well, white Australians talk a lot about how do we support better the Aboriginal communities yeah. and Torres Strait Islander communities? And it's something we're not, we haven't got a good grip on in Australia. And so I've spent time living with Aboriginal families when I went on exchange with school. So I stayed with a family for a month in Western Australia, Northern Western Australia, in Broome, which is one of the most beautiful cities in the world. So I, I did that when I was young and then in another kind of accidental arising when I was 23, I'd got to that point in my university degree because I was doing a six-year degree and I was kind of feeling a little burnt out. And um, in my Catholic parish newsletter, they had a little note saying, 
we're looking for uh, a young woman to be a boarding house mistress, can't remember what, house mother or something, for a boarding house in Western Australia looking after Aboriginal girls. And again, the way I'd frame it is I just wanted a break, I wanted an excuse. So I just wrote to them and said, look, I'm the eldest of a big family. I've got lots of babysitting experience. Mm. Um, you know, I've spent some time with Aboriginal families. We used to have kids come and stay with us all the time as well on this exchange program. On the, um, I'm sorry, on the Aboriginal exchange program. Yes, yeah. So because my school and my brother's school as well, um, they did, this was a regular annual event that they did, so they'd always be sending students there and coming back. Um, so we'd had lots of kids stay with us over the years. So I went and spent six months in Western Australia doing that. But again, I felt at the time I wouldn't have called that ally work. Mm. That was just kind of a job that from the outside might look like it kind of relates to diversity and inclusion. But I think the whole way through I was just kind of thinking, oh, I can see I can help here, like I can kind of volunteer here, but I don't really understand what more I can do. So that's probably something that drove me is this understanding that there are things out there, you know, there are gender yeah. issues, there are race issues, um, but I don't have the answers. I think that's where I was at. I was like, I don't have the answers to this and I don't have a place. There are really smart people who haven't been able to solve this problem or make a change. So who do I think I am? Hmm. Yeah. That's interesting. That's the shift from awareness to leadership to action. Yes. It sounds like it sounds like you're you had some experience with or or some awareness growing up. If you if somebody had told you when you were younger that you would have stepped into a leadership role that you would have taken action in in advocating would you what would your response have been to that would you <laughs> you believed it um i would have thought it was a bad idea <laughs> so <laughs> so part of that comes from a conversation that my mum cannot remember having with me but when i was younger and I'm guessing this was, say, maybe, you know, 13, 14, I said that I wanted to be a teacher or a social worker. And uh, mum said to me, you're not doing either of those until you've had a different career. And she doesn't remember telling me that. Really? <laughs> but I remember it. And she had experience as a social worker, so there was some right. wisdom in her saying that. Of course, the other person who was saying things was my dad who was saying, don't be a lawyer because he was a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> and he'd also say the law isn't a great profession for women. Mm. And so I ended up being a lawyer. Doing both, it sounds like. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I think um, I think when I was younger, the the main thought around that kind of work was financial concerns, definitely. And that was amplified for me as well because I did do volunteer work. So I met my husband when we were volunteering on a soup kitchen together. So mm. I did that for 10 years before we had kids and he's still doing that 20 years on. But when I started in the law firm, actually, my partner who really looked out for me and was an amazing woman to work for, 
But in my first performance review, she said, don't talk so much about your volunteer work because people might think you're not interested in earning money. Mm. And that was, that for me was a huge kick in the guts, really like I felt it so viscerally and I couldn't hear what she was trying to say. So I thought, I almost felt ashamed of doing that work and it took me a long time, like years, to realise that she was kind of trying to tell me this is how the world works around here. And she wasn't saying don't do the work, but she was saying just, you know, protect your interests because, you know, you should value your work and you don't want to say anything Hmm. to be devalued. I'm still... I still wonder about that and I do think that's probably a gendered thing. I think if there was a man coming in and talking about yeah. the volunteer work he'd do, everyone would be saying what a great guy. Yeah. And, you know, that's a valid way of building networks. But so, th- so the money concerns and the, the thought of kind of not looking out for myself first, I think that was something that came mm. through and got in the way of me thinking that, that that was a place that I could work. I'm curious about that because that is a theme of, you know, how we value things, how we value Mm. what we spend our time doing Mm. and that volunteerism or activism or advocacy is something we do on the side Mm. and that it doesn't have the same value as the things we earn money for doing. Mm. Yeah. And it comes up. I was talking to someone I used to work with um, and she'd do advocacy work around um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander inclusion and she came from a place of identifying as Torres Strait Islander. So she'd bring her stories into, or she still does, bring her stories into the workplace and it carries a load with it. Mm. And people use terminology like a cultural load or emotional load. And there's this, sometimes people say to her, just don't do it then. And I've been really thinking about that because I understand, you know, people want to be protective and they're also like, you know, you're paid to do something else. You're doing this extra. Why are you doing this extra? And, And we hear this conversation as well in women's issues there's a lot of talk about the emotional load that women carry and it's not just how many dishes they're doing and who's doing the laundry but it's who's thinking about the emotional well-being of the family and when I heard my friend speaking about it I thought oh I've been hearing that saying that it's bad that women do that work that it wouldn't it be good if we didn't have to do that work and I've been Mm. challenging myself this week to think "No, no 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 it's the other way around that's what, and something that I'm really passionate about is actually everyone should be doing this work. Yeah. It should be something that's part of everyone's every day. That we should have workplaces where people do emotional labor. Yeah. And that it's valued as part of who they bring to work and what they add to the workplace. Yes. So that's just some internal messaging of mine that I'm still working through and will continue to work through, I think. Yeah. And that protection of those who don't who don't carry an emotional load, who haven't been allowed to carry an emotional load, who haven't mm. been taught that that tapping into the emotional aspect of life is actually a valuable and important thing to tap into. Mm. Uh, but so protecting that lack of an, uh, an emotional load is not a goal. 
you know, like you're saying, you flip that around. It's not Mm. just that we shouldn't be carrying an emotional load. Mm. We should be sharing the emotional value of, Mm. of everything. It's not, Mm. I think about, it's so interesting that you say that, Hannah, because I'm thinking about the difference between these conversations adding value versus these conversations taking, or, or not even just the conversations, but advocacy or activism adding value versus taking power away from. If it's, you know, if you're, if there is a value added by opening up perspective, by opening up awareness, by opening up action, Mm -hmm. then it allows everybody to participate in that versus Mm -hmm. what it can deprive people of. Is that too theoretical? Well, I guess we could get concrete because, because I was thinking as you were thinking, I was thinking, oh yes, Anne's a men's coach. I can hear (laughs) coming through. This is this thing. I'm guessing this is the work you do with some of your clients to say, you've been just like women have been culturally trained to behave in a certain way and to have certain attributes. I think I'm imagining it's a great gift and joy for you to walk men through that process and say, I see, I see what society has done. It's not your fault that you've been raised this way to block these things out. Let's open some doors and see Mm. where it takes us. And when I've worked with just some of the men I've worked with, it's just been, it's really been amazing to have these men come up to me and talk about how hearing me speak has changed the way they relate to their family just a simple example, like in Australia, we have Wear It Purple Day, which is a day that was started by some high school students, actually, to tell young people that they are loved for who they are, for LGBTIQ plus mm. young people. And um, it started after a series of suicides of young people who were being bullied. So they really wanted to bring this out and The corporate world has jumped on it as well because it's this wonderful message of hope and it's really important that the corporates are signalling, you know, we know your world is changing at high school, we know you're finding inclusive communities there but we don't want you to go back in the closet when you come into work, which we know happens. So really important to do that to attract really good talent. But the thing for me that I didn't realise at the start is the ripple effect it has. So when you've got a dad running around the house trying to find purple clothes in the morning and he can't find anything and so he goes and gets purple hairspray and he sprays his hair purple in front of his kids in the morning (laughs) and then catches the train to work with his purple (laughs) hair and his kids say to him what are you doing and they're tiny kids and it's the first time he gets a chance to have the conversation with them and say because I really want you to know that I love you no matter who you love how you feel about your body how you express your sexuality and gender and the delight on his face when he just came up to me and he was like Hannah you I've heard you say that and it happened to me you know I had that conversation with my kids you can just see kind of their hearts expanding and that they love that they love that the that work is the place that they can come and have that experience and get access to that part of their parenting because everyone wants to be a great parent and a great colleague. It's just whether they've been given the skills to do it. Yeah. And permission. Yeah. So that, I love that you shared that story. Thank you so much for sharing that story. And, and also in that I heard 
that and I and I love that you use that analogy, open some doors as opposed to, you know, closing doors. It opened the door for him to parent in a different way, to mm-hmm. parent more vulnerably as well. And what a, you know, what a bonus for his relationship with his daughters, his children. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Oh, and that's and really- that, the vulnerability piece is there because, you know, I've been there. You start having these conversations and they're just so awkward and because you never had it modeled. Right, <laughs> so, right. You know, you'll get the acronyms wrong and yes. you know, if your kids are teenagers, they'll roll their eyes at you. And yes. They're like, but but they're hearing it, you know, like it's, and it's okay if you do it badly. Oh, well, that's brilliant because that was one of the questions I want to ask you, which is leadership can be really hard and messy. <laughs> you can get it wrong mm-hmm. and it can be full of shit that nobody really wants to do because it's, you know, you're risking, you're taking a risk and you know, obviously it's not the same risk as somebody who has to live the life of, but advocating for others. And, and, and I said it in, in my intro to you, your determination that you just keep moving through that, that you just keep doing, showing up to that work. How, how do you find the dance in it? How do you find the, this is really hard and I may at the very least be embarrassed at the very most I might lose friendships or work over this and I'm going to keep moving forward and it's going to be worth it. Where, where do you find that, that energy? I wish I had a formula so so that I could work through it more easily. (laughs) This last week I've been on a complete roller coaster of, um, of wondering whether I'm doing the right thing with Mm. my podcast And so I go through, I've heard enough stories of people who have been really hurt by people around them who will say that they're allies but then don't match that with their behaviour. And I've also had enough experiences of being that bad friend or ally, you know, not getting Mm. it, not being there. So I can see both sides of the experience and I'm learning not to, well, I'm learning actually what perfectionism is because people have told me before that I was a perfectionist. (laughs) And (laughs) when you come from a big law firm, I mean, that's, you know, perfectionists who are like right up there. I've been told off for uh, whether I wrote the date the 26th of January or January the 26th. I had someone getting really cross with me about that. And then other people caring about whether you were double spacing after the full stop or oh, not. Oh, yes. So for me, you know, that's, that, that's my benchmark <laughs> of perfectionism. <laughs> um, but what I've come to realise is that um, what perfectionism looks like for me or what other people are seeing in me when they have described me as perfectionist is I don't want to start something unless I'm sure I'm going to get it perfectly right. And... I'll spend more time focusing on what would happen if I did it wrong right. than what would happen if I started. And mm. um, and the, what I'll do there to protect myself is I'll um, do a lot of preparation. So in my last role at work, which was one I hadn't done before, you know, I'd just spend a lot of time trying to work out how to do it right and I had to learn to just do it and then kind of correct along the way. 
And so certainly when I started working in the LGBTI group, and I should say when we started it was called the LGBTI group and then, you know, the nomenclature keeps changing. So by the time I left we were calling it LGBTIQ+, which was the standard that one of our organisations that we worked with followed. But one of my strategies at that time was just to kind of really read a lot because I'd, I'd had people tell me, you know, you're a straight woman, Hannah. No lesbian is ever going to want to hear from you or there there will be people who don't want to don't want you in the space. And so I thought, okay, well, that's really good to know. It's really good to understand that some people don't want me around, firstly, and that that's okay. Um, but secondly, sometimes that might be because of experiences they've had with other people. So how mm-hmm. can I find out what things people have done? And so I, you know, binging on podcasts with queer um, mm. queer voices and reading books and watching movies, just really trying to get my head around what that experience was. And I guess one thing I've learned is there is no right way to do this. There is, there's a few wrong things you can do. But actually learning to apologise is really important or learning yeah. to catch yourself and reflect and being willing to explore different ways that work for different people. I think that's all I can do. Um, but it doesn't stop me from having days where I'm crying, thinking that I'm taking up space that I shouldn't be taking up mm. um, and that someone else deserves to be heard instead of me. But at the same time, I kind of feel that this is something I need to be doing. And so yeah. I'll have a go and I'll be ready. If it doesn't land well, then then that's okay and that can be a learning journey as well. I'm really struck by that. The awareness and the being able to apologize because none of us get anything perfectly right ever. Mm. Mm. I heard um, somebody asked me about, I was talking to somebody about the podcast and they said something about, and I think this is something they had heard in one of the workshops. Can you, you know, before you start something, can you, can you do it better than anybody else? And I said, well, fuck no, I can't. Mm. But when I decided to have kids, I didn't think I could do that better than anybody else either. I mean, <laughs> that, that's good. I wouldn't get out of bed. I can't live my day better than everybody else. That's a really high standard to meet. But can I be paying attention? Can I be trying? What is the purpose behind doing it? And can I remember what that purpose is? Can I stay egotistical enough to be confident enough to stick my neck out and and humble enough to realize <laughs> that I have so far to go, so far to go. And, I, and I've come far, but I have so far to go and just be curious the whole way. Yeah, I sometimes think that that's the gift we can give is show what the journey looks like. Yeah. We, we could sit around and do 500 practice podcast interviews and never publish them, but hey, let's have a go. And yeah. I personally love hearing that when I listen to things. I mean, I love the super polished information and I love it when people can communicate things really, really clearly, but it also <laughs> makes me feel seen and normal when people get it wrong and 
when they're a bit clunky through things. That showing somebody the path, that showing somebody your how you walk along this path and how bumpy and hard <laughs> and and lonely it can be is critical because then it allows other people, it gives other people permission to be on that path for themselves. Mm. And while I heard you say that as a child or really in your life, you have shown up to, to other people in service, that, that journey from showing up and really taking action and leading is a little bit of a, a shift and mm -hmm. if you don't have people to show you that you can do that, if you don't have people to show you that, yeah, it's hard and it's bumpy, but you can also, you can also keep moving. You can also keep doing it. You can do this work. You know, it becomes a lot less lonely when you have people showing you that. Mm. Yeah. And less scary, I think, as well. Mm -hmm. You know, we use language like you can bring your whole self to work. And we use that for diversity and inclusion. We want everyone to bring their whole selves to work. I didn't really know what my whole self was yeah. until I got into this work at work and met people and had these connections. Yeah. Which then, of course, has flowed through back into my personal life. So, you know, the way I parent is heavily influenced by these conversations and, and what I've learned from the people I've worked with. Yeah. That's what I'm taking away from this conversation is that it really is an opening, mm. not a closing. And it's mm. not just an opening for the people you're advocating for. It's an opening for you. And mm. then for all the people in your life who are impacted by you opening up to your truest self. I think there's a lot of benefit there to just have people from the outside come in and say, can't you see you've been put in these little boxes? Yes. And, and you can actually have an amazingly wonderful life yes. outside the box. But if you didn't know to look for it, you weren't looking for it. You didn't know you were even in a box. Yeah. It turns exactly. out we're the ones in the, in the closet. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it turns out we've been in the closet. Yeah. And we just need to come out and see the whole world as it really yeah. is. Yeah. And that, for me, that is the joy. It's um, yeah. just you know, seeing it from that lens and then experiencing culture through lots of different lenses mm. and just having that open up to you because you start to be tuned into, oh, there might be multiple ways of seeing this experience. And you can't, once you've seen it, you can't unsee it. It's like yeah. a prism. Once you've mm. seen a prism, you can't say, oh, I actually really only want to see one light. I don't actually want to yep. see a prism anymore. Yep. You can't. You know it's out there. It's yes. too beautiful to stay away from. Yes, that's it. Yeah. And even when sometimes it means that, I don't know, you look at yourself and you realize that that impacts the way you see yourself. Yeah. I was about to say, it's almost like um, the emperor's new clothes. That the fairy yes. <laughs> yes. You have to look around. And yeah. admit <laughs> yes. You made the wrong call. Wow. <laughs> uh, but overall, it's yeah. a good thing. And so that's, I mean, that's a, very long answer to your question of how do you stay in it. it it's that for me it's sometimes it feels really awful sometimes I wish I didn't know sometimes I wish I had perfected the art of being a normal woman you know I don't know normal lawyer on the normal path and then 
then I realise how much richer my life is <laughs> and think, no. Yeah. <laughs> Very glad to be here. Yeah. That's beautiful. Thank you. That I'm very glad you're here as well. And I'm really grateful to you sharing your story and, and showing, showing your path. I think that's, mm. that's really powerful and really helpful and hopefully inspires somebody else to stay or even get on the path. Mm. Just take a first step and try it out. At the end of the day, that is all of our jobs in life is learning when that when we should shut up and when we yes. should speak up. Um, there you go. <laughs> that sums it up perfectly. <laughs> we'll get there. Oh, that's great. Thank you so much, Hannah. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It was lovely talking to you. <laughs> Thanks for listening to How I Live Through This. I really appreciate it and certainly don't take it for granted. My goal for this podcast is to get support where it's needed. If you're so moved, please check out the organizations mentioned by my guest and consider how you might assist. Rating and reviewing How I Live Through This will also help amplify these heart-centered leaders striving to make equitable change in the world. Thanks so much.